Glory to Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we've been reading uh, for the last couple of weeks uh, the step on obedience, step number four. And tonight we are picking up on page 82 uh, with paragraph 39. And uh, he's been giving us a lot of little illustrative stories the last couple of weeks, uh, showing us what obedience looks like and how it's acted out in one's life. And uh, in some of the pages coming forward, uh, there are, they are going to be briefer sayings. So we'll have to slow things down a little bit so that we can think about them and talk about them. And, uh, but that, that should be okay. It's uh, all of it's beautiful and valuable. And so again, paragraph 39, having earnestly observed the activities of the brother in charge of the refectory, I saw that he always had in his belt a small book and I learned that he wrote his thoughts in, each, uh, in it each day and showed them all to the shepherd. And I saw that not only he, but also very many of the brethren there did the same. And this, as I heard, was by order of that great shepherd. So an interesting thing to keep such track of one's thoughts throughout a given day, uh, to train them to be attentive to what was just going on within their minds and their hearts, and also to be discerning in terms of what the source of those thoughts are. And so to write them down, and not only to write them down, uh, but also to reveal them to the, the, the shepherd that is the abbot of the monastery, uh, that he might help them reflect upon them, and especially if they're problematic, to address them more directly. And uh, again, this takes a great deal of trust and love of the shepherd to be able to do that, as we've seen in the previous stories. And on the part of the shepherd, uh, it takes a, a, not only a great deal of wisdom and, and discernment, but ge gentleness, that uh, this would not be, become a shaming experience uh, for the members of the community. You could see how it could easily devolve into that. So to have somebody that has a special kind of wisdom uh, to be able, and the ability, I think, even to receive the thoughts of everyone in the community. Not only is he dealing with his own spiritual life, but in his care of all the men within the community, also to be looking at their thoughts and reflecting upon them with them would take a great deal of prayer and a great deal of virtue. Uh, once one of the brothers was expelled by, by him for slandering his neighbor to him, and calling him a windbag and a gossip. The expelled man did not leave the gates of the monastery for a whole week, begging to be granted entry and forgiveness. When that lover of souls learnt of this and heard that this brother had nothing to eat for six days, he told him, if you have a resolute desire to live in the monastery, I will degrade you to the rank of penitent. And when the penitent gladly accepted this, the pastor ordered him to be taken to the separate monastery for those who were mourning over their falls. And that was done. But since we have mentioned that monastery, I shall now speak about it briefly. And so, again, we hear, hear one of these stories where uh, a soul is humbled because of a particular fall. And in this case, uh, one of, you know, the, of, of speaking ill of one of his brothers. So a breakdown of charity, uh, but also falling into the, the sin of gossip. And, uh, and so he's expelled by, by the elder. Uh, 
uh, knowing how destructive that that could be within the community, the spirit of gossip, that tearing down uh, members of the community to other members of the community is going to do nothing but foment a kind of division within it. And, uh, and so he doesn't hesitate to expel him. Uh, but after he sees that there is this humble repentance and that he embraces a fast for an ent entire six days, he allows him to enter into this penitential state. Uh, and again, we have to keep in our minds firmly that they saw repentance and the penance is given to them as things that were not punishment, but healing and meant to be healing. And it becomes important for us to understand this, especially when we hear about this monastery that was a little bit further away from the main monastery that was called the prison. <laughs> and uh, so we have to have that firmly in mind uh, that this you know, wasn't an abusive kind of situation. And you know, I once read Thomas Merton's commentary on this section of John Climacus, and I've always disagreed with it because he said, in looking at it, uh, and it really comes up in the step on penitence, uh, where he goes into great detail about the life of the monks there. Uh, he said that he saw only you know, great psychological illness and neurosis uh, there within this place called the prison. Uh, so deep was the spirit of repentance and penitence that they had uh, embraced. And most of them had broken their vows in some form or another. Uh, not simply falling into a particular sin like this monk, but really had sinned grievously. And so they enter into what was literally a penitentiary, you know, a place of deeper form where uh, the stillness, the silence, the unceasing prayer uh, was really embraced and watched over carefully by uh, a monk who had a particular wisdom in the, in the guidance of those who had fallen, as we'll hear, hear about. And so, but I think we have to have firmly in our mind, again, that this idea of embracing the spirit of repentance and penance is, is not uh, meant to be punishment, not simply meant to make a person suffer, that what uh, they embrace is to be curative, that to help them deal with the particular passions that they are struggling with. Okay. So in 41, he begins to describe uh, this, this uh, additional monastery. At a distance of a mile from the great monastery was a place called the prison, deprived of every comfort. There neither smoke nor wine nor oil in the food nor anything else could ever be seen, but only bread and light vegetables. Here the pastor shut up without permission to go out, those who fell into sin after entering the brotherhood. And not altogether, but each in a separate and special cell or at most in pairs. And he kept them there until the Lord gave assurance of the amendment of each one. Over them, he placed the subprior, a great man called Isaac, who required of those entrusted to him almost unceasing prayer. And to prevent despondency, they had a large quantity of palm leaves. Such is the life, such is the role, such is the conduct of those who truly seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so they, they enter into a place of great simplicity. And so they aren't surrounded by any of the comforts, even that one would find in a monastery of this time. So one could only imagine 
what it must have been like. And uh, a state of regular fasting, but deep fasting, almost what we would hear described within uh, the great fast of Lent. And so no use of oil, no meat, uh, only bread and light vegetables. And so a very uh, rigorous fast, uh, unceasing prayer that would be watched over by this elder Isaac. Uh, so to keep their minds and their hearts focused upon God and not to allow them to sort of wander, not out of the monastery, but not out of their hearts either. And to aid them in this, he also gives them a certain physical labor to keep their, their minds focused and uh, not study so much as a, a kind of work that uh, was more of a manual nature that would allow them, allow them to maintain this unceasing prayer. And so we hear that they are given a large amount of, of palm leaves that they would often make mats out of, and then these would be sold to help provide for the needs of the monastery. And, uh, and so such is the life and the role, he says, of those who have to embrace this deeply penitential life of the, the only healing, and the, especially for the, the deeper wounds, comes from, from Christ himself and giving oneself over to him as completely as one can. And, uh, you know, monks often looked at penance and penitential seasons in a different way than, than we do. I think I've mentioned in some of the past groups that in the role of St. Benedict, uh, the word joy is mentioned there in, in, about Lent more than any other part of the role. And it's because of the deepening of the spiritual life and the penitential life that for the monk, this should be the greatest and most joyful of seasons because there's a deepening of that intimacy with the Lord in and through the deepening of the spiritual practices. And so they didn't look at the disciplines of the penitential seasons as simply something to be endured, but it's something that would refine and perfect their asceticism and the fruit of that then would be growth and virtue, but also an experience of the joy of, of the kingdom, joy in Christ. And so in order to lead them out of and th th first through the sorrow of their com compunction and contrition to the joy of the kingdom, they are immersed in this penitential life in a very deep way. And uh, so it's like a prolonged Lent until the abbot would determ determine if true healing had taken place. And in the monk described in the previous paragraph, he sees the beginning of that spirit of repentance and that beginning of healing uh, through the rigorous fast that he imposes on himself and the fact that he prostrates himself at the gate of the monastery. So he sees within him at least the, the possibility of healing uh, and by entering into then this penitential, special penitential monastery. Okay. Any questions or comments so far? I know this might be a little bit jarring. Uh, okay, any thoughts? Yes, Carol. I'm sorry, I can't type that quickly. All I wanted to say is that um, it reminds me a lot of Isidore, who was placed in the position of having to stay outside of the gate. And initially, one would think that that was such an undesirable position. And he felt the same way. And yet in time, he came to see 
um, the fruit of it and the value of it. Right. That's right. That, you know, if initially he, he believes that he's being punished in this terrible way. And, uh, and then, you know, not long after that, you know, he, he sees himself worthy of that, of that punishment. Uh, but eventually it gives way to a, a kind of freedom that he begins to develop a spirit of humility and his ability to look upon the other monks begins to change. In fact, when uh, he's going to be freed from that penance, if I remember correctly, he asks to be able to remain within it at the gate of the monastery, uh, asking for the prayers of every monk that went in and out. And, uh, and so again, I think we get getting a sense uh, of how, uh, again, the monks looked at the penitential life. And I think when our embrace of the ascetical life becomes episodic or our embrace of certain uh, religious practices such as fasting uh, is too episodic, then we can lose that sense of it being a source of joy, that there can be a freedom, a humbling of the mind and the body that then leads us into deeper prayer, that brings a kind of stillness to the heart. Uh, or even what is mentioned here in terms of the, the manual labor, uh, that there is something about that. And, uh, you know, Ren, why don't we go to you? You have a comment and I anticipate what maybe you're going to say, but go ahead. Okay. Ren writes, I really appreciate that he mentions the manual labor. Wow. Even in this small paragraph about the prison. Helpful to remember that during the, a time of repentance, of fasting and deep prayer, the fathers themselves recommended some kind of small work to help the heart along and allow the stillness to come. Making prayer ropes works great too. That's right. And uh, it's interesting, you know, the, one of the modern elders says, you know, that we should all learn to make a prayer rope. And uh, because there is something that is contemplative about that, you know, the making of the use of the hands, focusing on the making of the rope in a prayerful way that you would be saying the Jesus prayer as you would be forming it, forming the knots. And it slows the mind and the heart down. And I think any of us who have done manual work outside uh, have probably experienced that, that there is a deep quiet that comes uh, upon one uh, internally, because you're so focused upon if you're working in the garden or I remember my, my father loving to be on the, the tractor cutting the grass. It was like he was in a zone there, uh, you know, for that whole time he was out there. And I experienced the same thing. And it's, there's something that, uh, that stills the mind from all the thoughts that afflict us. And so, again, tying this kind of manual work to it uh, keeps the, the mind from uh, jumping from various things or being filled with thoughts that begin to flood, flood us at times. Carol. Did you, have, you have to unmute yourself there. Okay. Sorry. Um, the only thing that I wanted to add is that it makes me um, think about the different circumstances in which we sometimes find ourselves, because how often has someone found themselves in a circumstance that may feel out of their control or extremely undesirable, almost like a prison, you know, 
and and maybe you don't see a way out or or there's no immediate way out and yet in those very circumstances these people were able to find um everything and and how often we seek to escape that very you know prison right that's a good point and you know the fathers often and referring to scripture in this but often referred to affliction and bearing affliction that a humbled and broken heart uh, is is something that uh, God does not scorn, and sometimes the the translation is crushed heart. And often the circumstances of our day to day life. I'm reading a little book by uh, Saint Ignatius Briankinov. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, it's on hope, but he's he's uh, uh, a great saint and great uh, uh, writer, but also one who. Uh, suffered with illness, chronic illness, mm -hmm. throughout the course of his life, and that eventually made it very difficult for him uh, to engage people in the way that he desired or to write. And uh, it's just a, a beautiful work, and uh, but captures something of that, that mm -hmm. this kind of affliction does something similar. It, it slows the mind and the heart down. There's a humbling that takes place there that allows us to be more attentive to God, uh, because we are experiencing on this uh, in a very intense way on a bodily level, our, our poverty, and that can lead, to, can lead to poverty of spirit, can lead us to cleave to God more and more fully in the experience of our need for him and our need for healing or our need for endurance and perseverance. And so sometimes the things that we look upon as, you know, unfortunate realities in our life, uh, by God's providence are turned into something that spiritually can be deeply fruitful for us. And we've talked about this number of times that even those who experience the gulag, you know, coming to, to see something about their, their life, that it was the affliction of being in the prison that freed them from a false sense of what it is to be a human being and revealed to them uh, that their relationship with God was... Uh, not very concrete or very deep. And it was precisely through that affliction that they were awakened to the deeper realities uh, of human, human life. And I think a couple of weeks ago, we even talked a little bit about uh, the boxer, Mike Tyson, you know, talking to some young men about this, his experience of being in prison and that it, it gave him something of a gift in the sense of being able to see his life for what it really what it really is, that he had been driven through his life by anger, hostility, the, the wealth of you know, being a successful athlete, but he also lost it all and ended up going to prison, but in, there, in prison began to experience a kind of freedom to be able to see himself as he truly was and, and also be able to see God with a greater clarity. And this is often the hard thing because God can seem absent to us. And I think it's only when we, you know, keep our eyes fixed upon Christ, Christ crucified, when we read the lives of the saints, the writings of the fathers, uh, gradually our, our per perception of these things can begin to change. And if we are praying ourselves deeply in the midst of the afflictions that we undergo, or those times that where we're confused, or we don't know where God is, or we don't know what path to take forward, 
if we are praying through it, then when we come out the other side, where consolation does come, uh, well, we then we begin to see a kind happened. of clarity. Hold on for a second. Okay. Deborah, do you have a question? Okay. I need to make a mind switch, heart switch, to think of the penitential seasons as a joyful, hold on for a second, a joyful time that I get to do, not drudgery obligation. Benedictine spirituality shows that work is a prayer. I don't know why my hand icon keeps disappearing. Okay. Yes, uh, it's, you're, you're right that I think, again, we can see it as drudgery. And I think going back again to what the, how the monks even looked at their daily work as their obedience, that they are fulfilling something in the sight of God and for the community that uh, bears fruit for them on a spiritual level that it's they're not just simply doing this work to produce something that the manner in which they do it what is within their minds and their hearts shapes the value of it and and that's true also with the the deeper afflictions i think that we go through life it, it, they can seem as though they have no value whatsoever or our life has no value whatsoever when we go through these things and we can be brought to a very low state uh, but in the midst of it, almost in an instant, God can, uh, you know, reveal to the heart, you know, not only his presence, but what, what he's doing with, within us, uh, which can be bringing us to a point of, of freedom uh, and a freedom of not finding our identity, our value in the things that we produce or that we think are of such importance for us. Uh, in this life. And sometimes when we are stripped of everything, you know, like chronic illness can do that to you, where all of a sudden you're not able to function in the way that you're, you were typically able to do for perhaps decades or all of your life, then you have to dig much deeper to discover where, where that value is to be found. Marco writes, the episode reminds me of St. Benedict's constant warnings against murmuring in his holy role. It comes up again and again, which makes you realize that murmuring is not just uh, blowing off steam, right? It ends up being a kind of cursing God's creation. Even in the work, work environment, murmuring eats away at the work environment and may lead to an undermining of authority. It poisons it. I can only imagine that this would be magnified in a cinematic environment. Absolutely. In fact, complaining was often one of the reasons, again, that would lead the abbot to have a person leave the community because it would have the, the exact effects that you described here. And St. Philip Neri was similar, you know, with melancholy or a complaining spirit that it can become toxic for the community as a whole. And so he would say, melancholy, melancholy, you have no place in my house. That lacking that joyful spirit uh, that reflects uh, a deep trust in the Lord and trust in his providence. If that is lacking, then this complaining or murmuring spirit can take over and it can really shift the focus of an entire community. And I, I like how you put it here, that it becomes, in a way, a cursing of God's creation. Uh, and we do often think of it as blowing off steam, 
as you say here, you know, that we are sort of getting something off of our mind and uh, to free ourselves from it, but it often doesn't free us from anything. If anything, it gets that psychological ball rolling. We begin to view our life and the thing or life in the community as a burden. And once that ball begins to roll, it not only drags us along, but others as well. And it jades the, the view of, of everyone in the community. So the life of obedience then becomes something that's oppressive rather than liberating and leading to a greater freedom. So great points. Venting, yes, that's the word I was thinking for. Thank you, Deborah. <laughs> okay, any other thoughts? We'll move on here. Okay, let's see, number 42, to admire the labors of the saints is good, to emulate them when salvation, but to wish suddenly to imitate their life in every point is unreasonable and impossible. Uh, so it's, you know, that we are meant to emulate the, the saints and the path that they walk, the virtues that they seek, the practices that they embrace, uh, in order to overcome the passions and to grow in virtue. But we have to enter into this with a profound spirit of humility, that even though John writes about this ladder of divine ascent, he wants people to understand that one cannot expect to leap up the ladder in one great stride. Uh, that when we, and when we seek to do so, that uh, we're more than likely to fall and to fall many times and to realize that you know, we have to be focused on the moment and on the particular passions that we are struggling with, overcoming them and forming the virtues that are most necessary uh, that, for bringing healing, but also along, allowing us to progress along the ascetical path. So even though a small saying, I think this is an important one because often we can become very frustrated and we can look at progress as the way that we look at it in the world and think that we should be making uh, this noticeable progress in the spiritual life. And again, we have to trust in the providence of God. Often he will allow us to experience our poverty, allow us to experience ongoing temptation uh, and in order to maintain something that's far more important, a spirit of humility. And uh, as we hear with Paul, he allowed him to endure this affliction, this thorn in the side, because it was precisely through that weakness that Paul began to experience the, the power of God's grace in his life. And so that's true for, for us as well. And so we don't want to, to, to look at the spiritual life simply as this steady line or linear uh, progress for us. Oftentimes we will you know, have to circle around I think the, 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 the virtues or the passions that we're struggling with, to see them for what they are, and also to detach ourselves from the things that lead us to the passion and develop a love for the virtues and a love for uh, the particular uh, spiritual practices that guide us to them. And so to love prayer, to love fasting, to love vigils, we have to change the things that we find most valuable and that bring us mo the most joy in our life. Anthony, is scrupulosity really an interior carping at oneself and lack of trust in God? 
it does steal the moment from a person and it is a form of complaining and it, and it is a spirit of fear. Uh, on one level, yes, you know, that, uh, that there, can be, uh, there can be an element of pride in it. Uh, you know, certainly in, in thinking that one's sin is greater than uh, what God can free us from or that what God can forgive. Uh, but more often than not, it's, it can be rooted in sort of a obsessive, compulsive kind of ruminating on one's sin and whether or not it has been forgiven or whether or not one has confessed it fully enough. And so it can be a, a, a really uh, powerful cross, uh, terrible cross for, for many people that it prevents them from experiencing the, the, the mercy of God and uh, trusting that uh, despite those faults, even, even if we have those faults every day, that great joy is brought to God whenever we turn back to him. So even if we were to fall every single day, Climacus will tell us that, uh, that there's, uh, you know, our guardian angel, he says, looks upon us with great joy. And in this, he echoes Christ himself, who says that when one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. Uh, or at one point he says, all the angels of heaven rejoice over the repentant soul. And so, you know, for a priest and for, for one who is, those who are struggling with scrupulosity under their care, there has to be a kind of gentleness, a willingness to look at what is going on in the mind and heart there, but to gently guide them uh, along a path to a greater trust in the mercy of God and perseverance. And, uh, you know, that they would experience a kind of gentleness and mercy in the confessor himself in order that they might then be able to look upon God in the same way. Often I found that it's rooted in uh, experiences of authority figures that, uh, that perhaps were very harsh. And that image can often be projected onto God where it's hard to believe that God is merciful or could look upon such failings, you know, with a, a tenderness. Daniel. Sorry, I can't type fast enough, but okay. just had a quick, um, quick comment on this that, you know, that it made me think about St. Teresa Lisieux mm -hmm. had a con had, she said something along the lines of like, it's our, oftentimes it's, um, it's not our like successes that that um make us attaining to to paradise you know to god um easy it's it's our it's actually our like oftentimes this sinful person at the end of their life has an easier time letting go and trusting in god than the person who's been you know good and successful in their own eyes most of their life and it just made me think about this because it, it that phrase reminded me of it because of the um wishing to suddenly imitate the lives of the saints you know is being unreasonable like like or you know to imitate every aspect of their life to kind of like assume that as you begin to admire their labors or emulate them that you would just like walk down that path and not stumble over and over again whereas like i think when i think about saint Therese saying that that it makes it points to like gaining humility along the way as, as that, that task ultimately. Right. Yeah, very good. And 
you know, he, we hear in the, again in the scriptures, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Father Stephen Freeman, and we've brought his name up a couple of times here. Uh, he's an Orthodox priest, but a great writer. And he has a, he, a blog site and where he, you know, offers these reflections, you know, about once a week. They're, so they're superb if you ever have a chance to read them. But, you know, he reminds us that it's in and through our sin that we are brought to salvation often. You know, it's in... Uh, and Newman often had this uh, view of things too, that we make our way to heaven backwards. We take one step forward and two steps back. And we, you know, recognize our poverty in, in our sin and our weakness. And in turning to God, humbling ourselves before him, then know his mercy, but also his grace that is transformative for us. So long as we hold on to the illusion and this is what's important to remember within, with the embrace of the ascetical life. So long as we embrace the illusion that we can somehow climb up that mountain of virtue or climb up that ladder of virtue uh, by our own will, uh, you know, by grit, that uh, we're still laboring under this sense that, uh, you know, that we can do this without God. It's really those who know profoundly the poverty of their own sin, have struggled with it, that and have had to cast themselves upon the mercy of God, that and who finally let go of that illusion, that come to know a kind of freedom from the very thing that afflicts them. And, you know, when we look at the scriptures, the ones who had the most difficult time were the professional religious of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, in terms of being able to see and acknowledge that, to hear whether it was to hear John the Baptist cry repentance or Christ's cry of repentance, or you know, calling people to you know seek out and embrace the mercy of God who was right before them. You know, those who could see their poverty or experienced it in a radical way, the woman caught in adultery who was going to be stoned to death or Matthew the tax collector who was hated by all of his fellow Jews because he you know, was basically stealing from his own people in order to make a living. Uh, these are the ones who were then able to receive Christ, embrace him and receive what uh, he offered them. And for them, it might've seemed too good to be true, but still they were able to experience it and have it transform their lives. Whereas the, for the scribes and the Pharisees, the pride became for them a thick shell uh, that we see Christ hammering against it over and over again uh, throughout the course of his ministry, uh, but weren't able to, to receive it. Okay. So Eric is our next question here. I've only recently, after 35 years following the Lord, been able, by the grace of God, to conquer melancholy, I think, and murmuring. And I do believe it was a great grace, but in retrospect, I can appreciate saying that it is unreasonable and impossible to imitate the way of the saints. Some people are at a place in their lives that God has permitted that, despite great fervor, they are unable to move forward. Sometimes it's just a matter of time, perhaps a lot of time. And sometimes it's hard to understand these principles because of where we are. Some of this I would have balked at just even a year ago, but I'm in a much better position to appreciate it now. Right, you know, I think because so often it is counterintuitive 
you know, in the sense of how we often approach our life and our striving and the manner of our striving for things, either to produce them or to win them for ourselves, you know, whether it's in academics, you know, or in the financial realm in our work. Uh, and so, so when it comes to the spiritual life, uh, this to abandon ourselves, to acknowledge our poverty, our need to be saved, uh, is something that's often very difficult for us because it is so deeply humbling. And for those who are new, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the idea of somebody drowning in the surf and, uh, and being dragged to safety by, by someone who often has to knock them out. Uh, so they pull them down and pull them in by their hair and then pump the water out of their chest. And so, some psychological studies have said that sometimes they'll develop this aggression or anger, animosity towards the one who saved them because it's a humbling thing. Nobody claps for the person who uh, drowns and is drowning in the surf. You know, they're all praising the hero that runs in and saves them. And so it's a humbling thing to acknowledge our poverty and that it is only by the grace of God. Uh, even all of our striving within the ascetical life or discipline in prayer, whatever it might be, all of that begins and ends with God. And so uh, as long as we, so long as we hold on to the illusion that we're doing it again by our own strength, we will experience it uh, collapse and we'll be humbled in one form or another. You know, even in terms of our, our judgment, and this can be the most humbling of things, we can think we see the truth about a set of circumstances. And in reality, we might see what is true about what goes on in relationships or with one person or a whole group of people. And our judgment might be very clear, but the problem is we are not God. We don't see all ends. We don't see what is going on in the hearts of each individual, what gives rise to their response to certain situations or how they're going to respond as they are engaged, as things un, un, unfold, as things play out. And when we make our way through a situation like that, it can turn out completely different from what we imagined. And that's a deeply humbling thing when we find out, I knew nothing. I thought I saw it with this perfect clarity and I prayed about it and I acted on it and I said all these things. And in the end, what I expected to emerge did not emerge. In fact, maybe even the opposite. And it's partly because we are blinded by our pride we don't realize that we have blind spots, hard spots that prevent us from seeing the fullness of the truth. And this is why we find the Father so often telling us not to judge at all. And so whether it's griping or gossiping or murmuring, we, we are doing exactly that. You know, we are placing ourselves in the position of God as judges of what is true, uh, rather than allowing things to unfold in God's time and trusting in, in his providence. We want to, to force the situation, control and calculate 
and, and form the circumstances in such a way that they turn out in the way that we desire. President Lesseau said, love does not calculate. Well, we calculate about just about everything you know, about how we're, what we're going to say to this person or that person in order that it might be received in the best possible way, you know, that we often lack a kind of uh, genuineness there and, and, and simply being who we are and speaking, saying yes when we mean yes and no when we mean no. Carol. And then Ren, I see your question there. When, we sh when shall we be convinced that our miserableness makes us strong against God? When shall we take cognizance of the fact that to plunge ourselves into our nothingness is the assured means to attract God? Martinez, right, a great, great writer. And uh, that's right, our nothingness uh, is our assured means to attract the gaze of God. And so, you know, I think the language of the saints is so often confusing to us. We hear John of the Cross, you know, use the word nada, nothing, and hear saints talk of their nothingness. Uh, this uh, Benedictine nun, Mechthil de Bar, some of her writings just being translated from the French now. It's superb if you ever have a chance to get any of her works, but she talks about this in, in, in nothingness that takes place within our life, that we realize that outside of God, that we are nothing, that he's the one who's created us, the source of our being. And when we embrace that reality, uh, then we come to see and discover our true identity, that it's rooted in him and him alone. And it's there, that, again, that we begin to experience a kind of freedom, joy, healing in our, our life. And we, you know, stop seeking to protect ourselves in this calculating way from others. And the world teaches us to do that. You know, we will turn inward to protect ourselves on an emotional level, even from those who are the closest to us, uh, because we don't want to be hurt. You know, to love is to be vulnerable. And to be vulnerable is to be capable of suffering. And experiencing the, that love, uh, not not being returned to us. And that's something that we often fear. Ren wrote, honestly, it's just so funny and absurd. Imagining a group of people on the beach applauding someone who just nearly drowned. And yet the moment that analogy is applied to the spiritual life, I realize that is exactly what I want. You mean to be applauded or to drown and then be applauded? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, again, there is something that's deeply freeing when uh, we, we don't feel that we have to put on, you know, the mask anymore. And uh, I think when we get older, sometimes that can happen on a natural level. You know, you know George Burns, does anybody remember him? The old, um, you know, person in the movies, he got to a certain age. He said, you know, I, I'm so old now I have no elders, so I don't have to respect them you know, that he could pretty much say what he wanted and not have to screen anything. And certainly we don't want to be guided by that alone, but the, a kind of freedom there to say what is within our heart and to be who we are without worrying how we're going to be judged by others. And to live as a Christian in the world, I think this becomes an essential uh, quality that we have to have that, you know, we become 
uh, transparent uh, in every way in order that people might see Christ. You know, often the, the mask that we put on or the posturing that we embrace, uh, I think prevents us from bearing witness to Christ at all. And so often this is why the, the church is rejected. They're not rejecting Christ, they're rejecting this distorted image that we often present of him. Okay. Any other thoughts or should we move on a little bit here? Okay. Number 43. When we are stung by rebukes, let us remember our sins until the Lord, seeing the force of our efforts, the efforts of those who do violence to themselves for his sake, wipes out our sins and transforms the sorrow that is gnawing at our heart into joy. For it is said, according to the multitude of the sorrows in my heart, thy consolations brought gladness into my soul. At the right time, let us not forget him who said to the Lord, how great are the many and evil afflictions with that which thou hast showed unto me. Yet having returned, thou madest me live to live. And out of the depths of the earth, after I had fallen, thou broughtest me up. So, that you know, the, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent bear it away. And so, you know, John is speaking here of those who uh, make efforts, who do violence to themselves and violence in the sense of, of you know, our own will or judgment our perception, our opinions, the mortification of the will, of the intellect, of reason, judgment, uh, all of these things uh, allow us to see the truth of what is within our heart, what is gnawing at our hearts, and that affliction that we undergo then eventually gives way to joy. You know, as the, the layers are stripped away of this kind of false self, what emerges is a true joy and gladness of soul, John tells us. And so a person, he says, is driven into the depths of the earth. You know, we experience, we're brought back to experience of who we really are, humus. We're made from dust. And once we, we begin to see that, then we are lifted up. He who humbles himself will be, again, will be exalted and uh, raised up to experience what God desires for us, which is far more than any of us could imagine or dream, dream of in terms of what the life, the life that Christ has made possible for us. Kevin Clay writes, if we humble ourselves, then God does not have to humble us through circumstances, et cetera. Right, that if we acknowledge these things freely before him, then he's able then to, you know, transform us. And, you know, again, when we aren't holding on to those illusions. And so we'll see in communities like this, the ones that John describes, or again, I often bring up Philip Neary because I, I know him well, that there were some in the community that he did not fail to mortify on a day, daily basis. And yet there were others in the community that he rarely or never mortified at all in terms of seeking to humble them depending upon their disposition, the state of their soul and their heart. And so 
if we are constantly humbling ourselves before God, then we, it opens that door for us to experience not only his mercy, uh, but the grace that then helps us to grow in holiness, that allows us to be conformed more and more to Christ. Okay. Any thoughts or comments on that paragraph? Okay, 44. Blessed is he who, though maligned and disparaged every day for the Lord's sake, constrains himself to be patient. He will join the chorus of the martyrs and boldly converse with the angels. Blessed is the monk who regards himself as hourly deserving every dishonor and disparagement. Blessed is he who mortifies his will to the end and leaves the care of himself to his director and the Lord, for he will be placed at the right hand of the crucified. He who will not accept a reproof just or unjust, renounces his own salvation, but he who accepts it with an effort, or even without an effort, will soon receive the remission of his sins. So again, you know, all of these things, I think, are jarring to our, our sensibilities, you know, to be disparaged every day, and then even to see ourselves as worthy of dishonor. Uh, the thought was going through my mind was the servants who, uh, you know, fulfill their duty. And, you know, they are to say, you know, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what we should have done. We've only done what is our duty. That uh, simply by fulfilling uh, and embracing the life that Christ has called us to doesn't bring us praise. That in the scriptures we hear, even the just man sins seven times a day perfectly. That, you know, perhaps not aware of it, falls short of the love that we, and the mercy that we are called to. And so our attitude, our constant attitude and disposition is to be that of humility. And when we see this, then our capacity to accept the, those mortifications, insults, mockery of others for the sake of Christ begins to grow and uh, bring us towards salvation. And he even says here, even without effort. So even a person who doesn't try, but just sort of bears it, uh, comes to know the fruit of that, which is being humble. And it might, the path to that might be a very rocky one, you know, and it might actually be through deep humiliations where we are uh, maligned as it says in the first line, that, you know, where a falsehood is put forward against us and we are humiliated for it, when we're able to accept that and not be moved to anger, where we are guided by meekness, where the, the love of Christ shapes that and frees it, that we don't, we don't strike back in anger, but are able to receive it and in receiving it, we receive it like the crucified Lord on the cross. That, you know, th this is what Christ does not do. He does not uh, respond, you know, uh, taking an eye for an eye or giving back to others, you know, what they have given to him. But he takes it all upon himself and uh, you know, all of our sin and the mockery that it is in and of itself. And, and all of our poverty he takes upon himself. Uh, 
and gives us only love. This is the standard for us. And so we have to let go of the standards that we often create for ourselves, no matter how they, they might be. Remember Peter saying, you know, how often should I forgive my brother, Lord? As many as seven times. He thinks that he's, uh, you know, going, you know, to the, the furthest limits there of mercy and charity. Uh, I know many of you have heard this before, but in the Old Testament, uh, we hear it said, if somebody sins against you once, you forgive them. If they sin against you a second time, you forgive them. Third time, forgive them. If they, they sin against you a fourth time, you do not forgive them. And uh, it's like the three strikes and you're out rule. And so Peter, what Peter is doing is he's doubling that and adding one to that, trying to show the Lord, yes, I get what you're saying here. So, you know, am I to forgive my brother as many times as that? And the Lord says to him, no, I say to you 70 times seven. So an infinite number, basically, he's telling Peter, or might as well have been telling Peter, is, is often as you're to forgive another. That is, your forgiveness is to know no bounds. And so that kind of destroys and dismantles all of our standards. And, uh, and when we are willing to allow that to happen is I think when spiritual growth can take place, because I think we all reach that point where we, we say, that's the line, that's it. I've had it no further. And I'm, I'm not going to take any more. And, uh, and I'm not saying here that, you know, that there aren't relationships that are toxic or destructive or harmful, but in terms of forgiveness or in terms of charity, uh, that we can often limit things for ourselves rather than, again, conforming ourselves to the mind of Christ. There's always something that's going to balk about that, resist, cry out from the heart. This is unjust. Sort of again, like the workers in the scriptures who start at the beginning of the day and work all day long and then are given the same reward as those who come at the 11th hour. You know, that we want what is ours, what is just, you know. So if we've suffered more than others, we deserve more kind of thing. Oh, a lot of hands up here. Anthony. Italians are like Hebrews. <laughs> Goodness sake. We want to, to send a message when offended. The forgiving 70 times 7 certainly does send a message. The opposite of the heavy-handed message we might carnally want to send. That's right. You know, I think uh, we want to send a message to people. Okay, I'm willing to be patient. But if you cross this line with me, you're, you're going to get it. You know, the smackdown will eventually come. Uh, I think, uh, is it Angela or Carol Nypaper was next? And then Angela. Carol Nypaper, what about when we are maligned and disparaged just for doing our job as a parent? How do we know when that happens for the Lord's sake? Uh, well, you know, I think at that moment, you know, if, 
if you know God is our Father, loving Father, and is maligned and disparaged, you know, constantly, you know, I think parents are going to experience that in a very powerful way. You know, they love unconditionally, you know, and have poured themselves out, sacrificed, you know, so many things for their children in their life. And often that love is not requited. And it can be the most painful thing to endure that uh, and to endure that for the very ones who do not return that love. You know, to be able to say with Christ, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And uh, so I think we know when that happens for the Lord's sake. I think every time it happens, you know, I think it's simply hard for us to be able to say that and requires, you know, this great resting upon the grace of God to do it. We can't do it alone. It's only by the grace of God that, and by the, what we receive in the, the Holy Eucharist in particular, that we're able to be able to make that cry our own. You know, still, you know, we aren't Stoics. So we feel that, uh, that you know, that sword pierces us and allows us to taste its metal, just like Mary. You know, a sword pierces through our hearts often when uh, we suffer like and with the Lord. And so when we embrace all these things for his sake, even the rejection of children or our family members, then it's then that we are most conformed to him. Angela Finnegan. Um, I have a different translation to the rest of you, but... Mm -hmm. um, um, mine talks about um, when we restrain ourselves for the Lord's sake, mm -hmm. that we're in the company of martyrs and, um, and refusing to do so is renouncing our salvation. But I, I think that this uh, business of dying to self mm -hmm. um, and, and, uh, is, is a martyrdom of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think whenever I'm in a situation of uh, you know taking that one down two down three down position i just have to think of the martyrs in the tradition to be able to realize that this isn't as hard as as i think it is um, so i just wanted to make that comment right. and you know it's part of our language too i think clarifies it mortification and you know and we often think about that in terms of certain ascetical practices, but I think when, again, when we get back to the mortifying of the intellect, reason, judgment, uh, the, the way that we view others, even when they treat us poorly, malign us, you know, this can be a, a dying, mortifying, a dying to the self in the most profound way that is a martyrdom. It's a martyrdom of a different kind. Uh, but is no less real than those who were persecuted for Christ or burned at the stake. You know, that there, again, that sort of sorrow pierces our heart, again, maybe in a more mystical way, but no less real. Uh, and, you know, I think where we find hope in this is, again, in and through what God has given us in Christ, in particular through the Eucharist, that we don't experience this in isolation. You know, a mother who, you know, knows the scorn of her children, you know, 
in faith experiences this not uh, alone or in an isolated fashion. But Christ has already embraced that as in the midst of that suffering itself. And so it's not wrong and it's not blasphemous, I think, to see ourselves stretched out with Christ upon the cross, because in reality, that is the truth. We become one with him in this most radical way in and through our reception of the Holy Eucharist and also in our participation in his redemptive work. So much so that Paul says we make up for what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. It's our participation in that cross and through our sufferings that we participate also within the redemption of the world. And so when we say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, we're not just saying that, you know, as a pious statement, you know, that we are saying this with an acknowledgement of the reality that we participate in, uh, the, the life of Christ that we participate in, in the most radical and tangible way that we could imagine. That the cross should never, and is never an abstract reality for us. And in a similar way, we should not come forward to receive the Holy Eucharist unless it's our intent to embrace that love, that cruciform love, you know, that allows itself to be broken and poured out for others unless we're allow, to allow our desire to allow ourselves to be conformed to it and to offer it to others. Because when we receive it, we say, amen, so be it. So let, let this be done. Let me become Eucharist. Let me be broken and poured out in love for others in the way that Christ is. And so, you know, Chrysostom says, you know, there should be a kind of fear and trembling at one point in our life that we have about receiving Holy Communion, if we really have faith and see it for what it really is. Uh, and he says that not to, to drive us away from receiving the Holy Eucharist, but that we would understand the, the radical significance to our own amen to receiving it, that we are entering into the, the life of Christ in every facet in order that we might also share in the fullness of that life throughout eternity. Ashley and then Wren. Well, Art had a little thought there and then accepting our cross is, is the beginning of death to self. It is the Via Dolorosa that leads to our complete destruction. Yes, dying to self in order to rise with Christ. Okay, Ashley, I think people of today misunderstand forgiveness versus reconciliation. We should always forgive and hope for reconciliation, but I think people want reconciliation first and hold out on their forgiveness as if they are seeking satisfaction and forgiving as the reason to offer it. I'm not sure I have this fully thought out yet, but it is interesting to me how fervently people will hold on to their anger in regards to failure in leadership, failure in friends, sites, offenses, etc. Anger is a big thing, and I've been trying to understand it. I know fear of suffering is present behind this and may actually be the main motive behind these resentments and harsh opinions. But long-lasting anger seems useless and a detriment to the interior life. Right, because it, it is something that I think poisons us that and then becomes the obstacle to that forgiveness. Whereas the forgiveness then 
you know, frees us on from that anger that then tears us apart over, over time and then becomes a barrier to any kind of reconciliation. Because we begin, we continue to see everything through our anger and through our wounds. And I think the forgiveness that is offered then allows us to see the person for whom for who they are. And sometimes, you know, we hear, hear the saints say that when someone sins against us, who we should be angry at, angry at are the demons that tempt them to this action. And that we should look upon others in compassion when they fall into particular sin. And that's a very difficult thing to do again, you know, to be able to look upon other who maligns us or treats us harshly or treats us poorly who rejects us and yet to be able to say, you know, they, they really don't know what they are doing or that they are afflicted or uh, in, in a kind of bondage themselves that I have to pray, pray for them that they might be freed from. And perhaps that's where forgiveness begins, you know, our acknowledgement of that and our willingness to pray for the healing of the other. Ren Witter. Did you put yours up there? Okay. That second to last sentence is very hard. That being unable to accept even an unjust reproof is a renunciation of one's salvation. It reminds me of something else uh, one of the fathers said, I don't remember who, that if you are unjustly reproved for something, you should accept the reproof as deserved because undoubtedly you've committed many sins for which you were not reproved. Right. And yeah, it is a hard saying, you know, that, uh, you know, salvation for us is not something that is abstract, that it's been made manifest to us in the most concrete way, you know, in and through the self-emptying of the incarnation itself, you know, Christ taking upon himself our flesh this downward mobility on our behalf, humbling himself, taking on the form of a, a slave, a servant, and ultimately emptying himself completely upon the cross. And even having the strongest desire to do that, you know, that, oh, how I wish, you know, the, it, it was already burning, you know, that the, 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 the fire of his love would be let loose upon the cross. And uh, again, it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around, but this, this is what salvation is for us. This is how salvation has manifested itself to us. And I think this is why so many people walked away when he offered his teaching about the Holy Eucharist. You know, when he tells them, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. And half of them walk away. And I think in our minds, we think, oh, you know, they, they, they didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was saying. And, you know, over the years, I began to question that interpretation, you know, which was my own at a certain point and think, no, I think they understood him perfectly well, what he was saying, that if he becomes that, if he, their master becomes that, then they are going to have to become that. And Thomas, you know, he acknowledges and, you know, he's often seen as this weakling, doubter, you know, lacking faith, but he actually had this incredible courage. And then, you know, when Christ sets his face to Jerusalem, Thomas says, let us go to die with him. 
And he might have not known what that death would bring about, but there was this willingness to follow Christ, you know, to the end. Uh, no, of course, all of them, you know, abandoned and fled, but eventually, you know, were, were able to come back to embrace it. But uh, we have this tendency, again, to turn salvation into this thing in the past, an historical event in the past, rather than this present reality. And that is present to us in, in the most radical way. It permeates our very life in, uh, in, in every, every facet of our life is touched by it. And, uh, and that's, I think, why then we can have this saying that when we move away from that, when we re reject that, it is our turning away from that path of salvation and what brought us salvation. It is like those group of disciples who walk away at the teaching of the Eucharist. We're saying, this is not for me. This is not what I, I want or I'm willing to embrace. And I think it's said to us in the same way that Christ says things within the scripture, not mere hyperbole, but is speaking the, the truth in, in a way that, again, we might have no illusions about the life that we are called to. It, it, it asks everything from us, but it promises everything to us. And Christ would want us to understand and see both things, that we're, we're offered all the fullness of life in Christ. But what is asked from us is that we would hold nothing back of our love from him. Any other thoughts? Carol, and then we'll wrap it up here. This seems to rely uh, very heavily on deep faith and trust in God's providence. And while all that happens, uh, willing, all that happens is coming directly from the hand of God as God's will for our sanctification. It requires great setting aside of our own judgment, yet enables one to remain at peace in all circumstances. Right. And, you know, that encapsulates it. But I, I think the struggle for us in the spiritual life is, you know, to be so immersed in Christ, so focused upon him, that our minds and our hearts begin to be shaped by this. And it becomes the lens through which we view these things. And again, it's by entering now into that life that we begin to experience something of that peace of the kingdom, an invincible peace an invincible joy, not that we create for ourselves or create in our own minds, but is given to us by living in this radical intimacy with Christ. We begin to taste now something of that joy and the peace of the kingdom that allows us to embrace the, this deepest of mortification, which is setting aside our judgment of things and trusting in the providence of God even when what we experience is a, a, a great trial. When we read about obedience, we always have to read it through, again, again the lens of Christ. You know, in, in the sense that obedience brings freedom. And so his food is to do the Father's will. His greatest desire, his greatest hunger is to be obedient, even, even unto death, in order that we might come to know freedom from our sins, but also the fullness of life. 
So it's obedience, binding ourselves to Christ in this way and to his will is what brings us true freedom. This is why the monks were willing to live this life. And this is why what will make us willing to embrace it in our lives as well. Okay, Josie, okay, go ahead. Oh, is mortification something that precedes joy or can they exist together? Well, I think they do coexist. I think as long as we live within this world uh, that there is always this dying and rising. You know, we're always entering into the Paschal mystery. This is the constant movement that exists for us. You know, we die to self and sin and rise to life in Christ. And so mortification and joy go together. You know, we begin to taste something of that joy that we will know in all of its fullness. And, and so it is until we leave this world that we are engaged in this process, this dying and rising uh, that we celebrate so beautifully during the, the, the Holy Week. And, uh, and this is what we have to internalize on, on a very deep level. Again, you know, St. Isaac said, you know, in this world, there's no Sabbath for us. There is no rest from this reality, from the, our entering into this, this profound mystery, the Paschal mystery. So it's possible to be in suffering while also in joy. Yes, you know, I, I think we, we see this within the life of the, of the saints that, you know, those who have internalized this and embraced this and been transformed by it, that, you know, they can take joy in the midst of their sufferings and over the fact that they are suffering for Christ and within in him, that they experience something of that intimacy with him as they themselves are being nailed to their own cross, they find that they are being drawn ever closer to Christ. That's why I said earlier, it's not blasphemous, I think, to see ourselves as, you know, with Christ on the cross, because when we receive the Holy Eucharist, that becomes the, the reality for us. We're united to him in this most profound way. And so that is what brings joy that we're made one with him and experience a deep, deep intimacy with him. And this is why, you know, you hear from some of the saints, these strange thoughts, you know, that when there is a lack of a cross in their life, they begin to begin, they begin to uh, be worried about it. There's something that's wrong that, you know, are they being uh, prepared for a greater fall or are they neglecting something about the, the spiritual life? Because it is such a profound part of, of, of that mystery that we are drawn into, this dying and rising. And so if uh, this fundamental element of it is missing is when they begin to get worried, you know, are they being neglectful, lazy, or are they take, you know, resting in the things of this world? Have they taken their eyes off of Christ in some way? So it's, uh, I'll have to read some of the comments a little bit later and we'll pick up next time. It's about 10 to nine. So I don't wanna wear everybody out with this. I'm sort of worn out by it. And so you could send me all of your hate mail <laughs> later. Uh, a lot of this is, I, I understand it's really challenging. It takes us right to the heart of the gospel. And 
again, I think that's what we find in the Desert Fathers. You know, they, that was, again, their spiritual reading, you know, what shaped and formed their minds and their hearts. And so when we delve deeply like this, I think it takes us right to the, the heart of the gospel. And in this profound way, too, it comes alive for us. And I think it can sort of pull us out of our comfort zone, if you will. Okay. So when we close there for, for this evening, as always with our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful night. Wonderful comments and questions. Pray for you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Still waiting. Absolutely. Pray that the assignment comes through. So have a great week, everybody. Good father. Always a joy to see you. Good to see you. Great. Night, Mom. There you go. <laughs> we can stop now. <laughs> we can All leave right. now. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>